Amen. You may be seated. So history has it that on August 8th of 2010, Pastor Matt and Angela Rudd began serving at this church. Some of you remember the day. Some of you were sitting here in this room. And according to our attendance records, on that day, almost 12 years ago, he preached to 86 people. And last week in this same room, he preached to 218 people. So as you consider and as you think back to what's been happening in this church over those 12 years, one thing is evident and obvious. The church has grown and is growing. Growing in numbers, yes. Growing in newcomers, yes. Growing in new members, yes. People are growing in their faith as well and a desire to serve others, absolutely. Much of what we see here on Sunday mornings is encouraging. God is among us and he's doing a new thing. He's here in the people, during the preaching of the word, during the singing, scripture reading, and prayer. He's here in the words we speak to one another after the service. Uh, he's here working through his people um, as we share uh, emails throughout the week, as we share meals and prepare meals for one another as well. He's working through his people in the small groups uh, that some of you host and lead and attend. He's here in the love and forgiveness that ex is extended and received in the people as well. So it's clear God is with us. What's going on here, Calvary? What's, what's going on here at Calvary? Is there something about us that's super special? How do we make sense of the growth? Well, Pastor Matt has been an instrument in God's hands, faithfully preaching the word for years. And we're thankful for that. We thank God for that, and we thank God for him. God grows his people through his very words. But when we see our church grow like this, uh, it can also be tempting to think that we as a church are a big deal. But I think there's a better way to make sense of this church growth that honors God and the humans he used and is using. And I think the way to do this is not to look for the ways our church is outstanding, but to look for the ways that our church is ordinary. To look not for the ways that we stand out, but for the ways that we're similar to the church in Scripture. Because our church has the very same message and the very same Holy Spirit as the church we see in the Bible. And uh, we'd do well to take notes of the similarities we see in our church and that church for both encouragement and instruction. Today we're going to do that by looking at the book of Acts, the story of the early church. And one of the striking instructions we get in Acts is that when the church grows, so do the problems. <laughs> As you see in Acts, while God is powerfully working, that sore loser Satan is always trying to make some inroads into the church. He tries it in various ways. And this shouldn't surprise us because Satan hates God and he hates to see God's plans and God's people flourish. So what does he do when he sees a church growing and good things happening in that community? John Stott says he usually plans a counterattack. Listen to how he summarizes things. He said, 
Uh, he says, as soon as the Spirit came upon the church, Satan launched a ferocious counterattack. Pentecost was followed by persecution. His strategy was carefully developed. He attacked on three fronts. His first and crudest tactic was physical violence. He tried to crush the church by persecution. His second and more cunning assault was moral corruption or compromise. Having failed to destroy the church from outside, he attempted through Ananias and Sapphira to insinuate evil into its interior life and so ruin the Christian fellowship. His third and subtlest ploy was distraction. He sought to deflect the apostles from their priority responsibilities of prayer and preaching by preoccupying them with social administration, which was not their calling. If he had been successful in this, an untaught church would have been exposed to every wind of false doctrine. These then were his weapons, physical persecution, moral subversion, and professional distraction. And it's distraction that we're going to focus on today. When a church like ours grows, God causes the growth. Growth in numbers, yes. Growth in faith, yes. Growth in people, yes. We would call them good problems or growing pains, but this comes with the territory. When a church grows, new problems emerge, and the leaders of the church need to be ready to adjust to these new problems or growing pains. And one of the problems that churches see when churches grow are the conflicts of the people. So having the right people in the right places to respond wisely to these conflicts is critical for the community's credibility and well-being. This is the situation in Acts 6 which is where we're going to go today. Listen to how Matt Smethurst, the author of the book called Deacons, puts it. He says, Indeed, how our church re- churches react to conflict can make all the difference in whether our gospel witness is obstructed or accelerated. Acts 6 is a story of church conflict handled well. And in a society where many people have church hurt, and have been wronged by the church, it's important for us to understand how to rightly respond to conflict when it arises in our church. New growth brings new problems. We're going to see this. This is what was happening in the early church, and we can expect it to happen here as well as we grow. We're growing in people, and uh, we're growing in problems, friends. So let's pay attention to this text and prepare to be instructed and encouraged by the similarities you see in the Uh, at the church here and in the book of Acts, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, please flip to Acts, chapter 6, which is on page 914 of the Bible in front of you. As you do, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity today to take time to hear from you and to gather as your people who've been called out of darkness into light, who've been called by your name to follow Jesus. And Lord, you care for each one of us here, and you care for us as a body, as a church community, that we would continue to grow and use our giftings and uh, uh, serve others and uh, bring fame to your name in this city. We pray that you would do that, and we pray that today we'd all be instructed and encouraged by your word. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Acts is the story of the early church. It shows us how the church increased in number and spread the message of Jesus. 
Seeing how this church grows is instructive for us. So today we'll take note that God works through his word and church in spite of internal problems. God works through his word and church in spite of internal problems. The first thing we see in this text is that God works through his word and church in spite of inner conflict. In spite of inner conflict. Look at verse 1. Now, in these days, now I just want to remind you what it says in chapter 5, verse 42. Okay, this is, there's good things happening. It says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, preaching is going on and, and the message is spreading. And then Luke continues and says, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's the situation. This new group of people called disciples have been deeply moved by the love of Christ. It's changed their life, and they stick out like a sore thumb in society because they keep talking about Jesus who was raised from the dead. They are energized by the Holy Spirit, insisting that anyone can be forgiven from their dark past because God is gracious to spare anyone who turns from their sin to his Son. And as this news spread, people, as this news spreads, people from all walks of life start believing it. God himself is opening people's hearts to believe this good news as the church speaks it. Now, this is glorious. We rejoice, we're excited, we're encouraged as we see this happening, but it also creates new problems. As the ministry grows, there's more people to organize. There's more people and problems to manage. Right here, the problem we see comes to the apostles' attention by a complaint. And this complaint is by one group of people against another. The, brother, the, the believers with a Greek background, the Hellenists, are complaining about the believers with a Jewish background, the Hebrews. There is a lot of animosity between those two groups. The complaint is that the, the widows from a Greek background are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is a church conflict with ethical and social and theological implications. Because after all, God has repeatedly said in Scripture that he cares in a special way for the poor, widows, orphans, and foreigners. So this is a loaded conflict. It's an urgent matter that must be handled delicately and wisely. What will these followers of Christ do? What's at stake here? If the problem is mismanaged, Cornelius Van Dam says, the neglect of widows was a serious matter. Once a widow became a Christian and was likely expelled from the synagogue, see John 9 and John 12, she gave up the material security the synagogue had provided and could no longer benefit from its aid to the indigent. A Christian widow then needed help immediately. To be left unattended was unconscionable. If there was one place where widows should be completely at home in the present world, it was in the church. So the church now needs to tend to these women whom the Lord takes a special interest in. So we pause and we look on with the society around them. Will they even care? Will they meet their needs? How will they meet their needs? What will they do? 
The same question can be asked of us today. Do we care about the people God cares for? The poor, the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners around us in our church? If so, how and who will meet their needs? I find it interesting that the apostles, whom verse 12 calls the twelve, don't seem to be interested in pointing fingers or taking sides in this conflict. They see the presenting problem from a different perspective, a different angle. They see this as a legitimate problem that needs to be solved properly, but they also recognize that they have a job to do. So they decide that the right thing to do is to enlist the right people to serve these widows well. We'll see how this happens in a minute, but in an interesting twist, they also see their duty as a service to the church. So they stick to their job, and in verses 2 and 4, we see that God works through his word and church when leaders maintain their priorities. When leaders maintain their priorities. So what do they do? Look at verses 2 and then verse 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should go up preaching the word of God to serve. It is not right that we should uh, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The ministry here means service. So the contrast here is between serving tables and serving the word. Both are necessary for the well-being of the church. Caring for the widows is an immediate need that needs to be met. But the apostles maintain their priorities. They will serve people the word and appoint others to serve people food. Now, there's a parallel in Scripture between the 12 apostles mentioned here and elders mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. But there are also some key differences. The apostles had actually seen and been with the risen Christ. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down the New Testament that we have today. They prioritized writing and preaching the Word because God gave them a special assignment and God's people live on and grow by his word. Now, if you take a few moments this afternoon and read any of the New Testament letters or even the sermons in the book of Acts, you'll see that these men must have devoted themselves much time to studying and meditating on Scripture. Uh, If we look, for example, at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you see that he's quoting and applying relevant texts from the prophets and Psalms to his immediate hearers showing the consistency and continuity of Scripture from Old to New Testament to this new community of believers. And this task requires careful interpretation, and the church was built up and built on the teaching of the apostles. As Ephesians 2, verse 20 and 21 says, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we see and agree with the apostles that indeed it is not right that they should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They need to maintain their priorities. And the church lives on the word. So the leaders who have been entrusted to teach must maintain their priorities to teach. In our church today, we have pastors who differ from apostles in that they have received the scriptures from them. We pastors don't write scripture. We write sermon, sermons 
on those scriptures, but our ministry is basically retweeting the Bible. Meditating, studying, reading, and don't miss verse 14, praying the scripture to ourselves, to the people around us, and the congregations we're at. This is pastoral ministry boiled down. It's spiritual service to the people of God. Devoting ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the word. This is the core of pastoral ministry. Praying for people by name, through the directory, on the phone, preparing messages, counseling sessions, conversations with troubled saints, to name a few. These are the works that we do. Though pastors differ from apostles, they would do well to maintain the same priorities, prayer and preaching the word. So how do we do this here at Calvary? Well, we pray for the saints in person, over the phone, over email, with our small group or with Pastor Bob's small group on Wednesday mornings. And we serve or minister the word. What is the ministry of the word? Is it restricted to the speech that happens here every Sunday? Or can the ministry of the word extend beyond that? I think the ministry of the word happens here on Sundays behind this pulpit, absolutely. Most Sundays, Pastor Matt preaches us, uh, preaches uh, or serves us the word after many hours of preparation. We don't see what he does in preparing the message, but I assure you it takes a long time. And we're nourished and thankful for the time that he spends on the word, prayer and preaching, preparation for it. But the ministry of the word continues in this church past Sundays. As we recall what was said from the word, either around meals or as we apply it to ourselves in small groups, Many other ways, the word keeps moving through the church beyond Sunday mornings. What starts up here publicly on Sundays continues to sink in throughout the week. The word is alive. But word ministry also happens privately when we're alone reading the word, journaling, praying, or singing. The the Holy Spirit ministers to us. And it happens interpersonally during counseling, book studies, uh, as we text verses and encouragements to one another. God's word is being served to us in many ways throughout the work, it's, it, throughout the week. And we're growing as a church because the word is at work. But when this growth brings management problems to the church's leaders, what do we do? Uh, who do we call? Who can help us? Let's say, for example, someone in the church needs help moving. Or there are people who need to use the elevator to come hear the word every week. Who does that? Do we email Pastor Matt for every problem we see? No, let let him devote himself to the ministry of prayer and preaching the word. His priorities need to be maintained. So who do we call then? Who can help when management, uh, managing people becomes a problem in our church? The answer to this question is that some of the management problems need to be delegated to the faithful deacons of our church. Say, what? What's a deacon? Uh, Matt Smethurst defines deacons this way. They are model servants who excel in being attentive and responsive to tangible needs in the life of the church. In what ways do they serve? By assisting the elders guarding the ministry of the word, organizing service, caring for the needy, preserving unity, mobilizing ministry, and more. Now, 
The next part of our text shows us that God works through his word and church when the church selects and appoints qualified leaders. I'm going to look back at verse 2 and then uh, read through to verse 3. The apostles say, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out, uh, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, why did I just mention deacons? That's because most scholars see this chapter as the foundation for the office of deacons. The seven mentioned here serve in a similar way to deacons, which are mentioned and developed further elsewhere in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's a surprising remedy and solution to the problem we see here, isn't it? The answer to the conflict is not to pick sides, but to pick qualified people to so solve both the practical and personal problems. Think of it. This is not a small task they're dealing with. Remember, it's charged up. People are enraged. Different groups of people, different ethnic groups of people with different backgrounds are enraged at one another because one group of people is neglecting the widows of another group of people. And not only that, it's actually, uh, um, the widows are, are vulnerable. They're a vulnerable group of women needing to be cared for immediately. So the, the situation is charged up. They're going to need a few wise leaders to step in and manage these matters well. So what do they look for? Uh, the qualifications are just very short here in verse 3. They look within the church community for the right kind of people. It says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. And they need to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. There it is, boiled down. In, in other words, this leadership position is for servants who have been proven. This position shall not be filled by anyone who has a pulse. They're, 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 they're going to step into a very charged situation. They cannot make this situation worse. And therefore, they need wisdom and the Holy Spirit. They need to have a good track record. They need to be, have a good reputation for godliness. They need to be examples of Christ, the true servant. Daryl Bach says their qualifications have two major components, that they be spiritual men and that their character be well accepted by others. Paul lays out the qualifications of deacons in more detail in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12. And here you'll see an expanded uh, descriptor of what deacons should be, but it's very much in step of what we see in verse 3. Scripture says there in 1 Timothy 3, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to what much wine, not greedy for dishonest, dishonest gain. Sorry, my tongue is not working this morning. <laughs> uh, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Interesting. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's the qualifications, and in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, you get both the qualifications of elders and deacons side by side in this chapter as it flows through. And then in verse 15, 
Paul tells Timothy that he wrote these things so that Timothy would know, uh, quote, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So what's at stake here? The point is the church only functions as the family of God was intended to when the proper people are in the proper places. Many churches malfunction here because unqualified leaders are put in leadership positions and they make an utter mess of things. And a church needs both deacons and elders to rightly cooperate in order for the church to rightly operate. Now, one of the reasons I chose to preach a sermon on deacons today is that we elders have been noticing that managing people and problems because of our growth is taking up more of our time. And prioritizing the word in prayer is often crowded out with important needs, absolutely, but needs that we should probably delegate to deacons. Delegate to deacons. You may remember that back in the beginning of COVID, Pastor Matt and Angela facilitated a worship service from their home each week. That was amazing. Pastor Matt would preach and Angela would lead us in singing. Uh, what a gift they gave us each week uh, as they served us the word in prayer and we sang together, though, from our homes. It was amazing. What you and I didn't see is that Pastor Matt also spent hours and hours. By the way, I didn't ask him to share all this information. <laughs> I just know this to be true. Uh, so he's not tooting his own horn. I'm just doing this to, t to tell you what was, what was happening. Behind the scenes, Pastor Matt was working hard hours upon hours, trying to figure out how, what tech equipment we could use to facilitate uh, the ministry of the word going forth online. And we're very thankful for that, uh, that he did this as a service to us as a church. But it wasn't sustainable, and it isn't his job. It's not right that he give up preaching the word and prayer to be focused solely on those things. So his job as our pastor is to devote himself to prayer and preaching. So we now have a new deacon position called the tech coordinator, technical coordinator that serves the church in that way, helping us with technology to make sure that we're able to serve people the word online and in other capacities as well. So what a blessing to have this in place, but we're thankful that deacons are serving people throughout the week in our church as well. We have many other deacons serving each week in our church, from the children's nursery and kitchen coordinators to the trustees, tellers, and treasurer. We have many deacons who serve this church each week faithfully, whom you don't see up here on stage. They're at the back. They're serving, maybe in security. They serve in many ways to keep the ministry of the word going. So to all you deacons... Your service at our church is very much appreciated. We thank God for you, and we thank God that you are helping us as elders and pastors to serve the word and to pray for people. Without you, we couldn't do this ministry. So thank you. Now let's go back to the text. The church's leaders appointed seven people to fulfill the duty of caring for these widows and reconciling the conflict. And how do the full number of disciples mentioned in verse 2 respond to this? Look at verse 5 to 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permenaeus, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. 
who commenting on these verses, Daryl Bach breaks it down by saying, this unit shows the community using its own people to solve its own problems. The community hears the complaint, owns up to the problem, allows those closest to it to solve it, delegates the authority to get it done, and then goes to work. The laying on of hands here is both a picture of association and appointing people to this task. And the seven people who met the qualifications of verse 3 were given a job. They were prayed for and publicly recognized to the service. Uh, some of them, some of their names you will recognize. Uh, there's Stephen, who becomes the church's first martyr. There's Philip, who was known as the evangelist. And in Acts, uh, we see Philip consistently gossiping the gospel and bringing people to faith in Christ. So are deacons important for the well-being of the local church? Absolutely. Matt Smethurst calls them shock absorbers. Uh, can you imagine driving in Ottawa without shock absorbers on your car? Especially on baseline? Uh, the, con the, the, the constant bumps of the ride or of the road would make it impossible to drive well. So it is with the church. When we're growing, it's essential that the leaders in our church, that is the elders and deacons, function properly. And when we do, we can absorb the shocks that come our way. The deacons help the elders to do that. Whether it's conflict resolution or meeting tangible needs that arise, we can continue to adjust to the new problems that arise, and we can continue to grow in the midst of the pains. And this is where our text finishes. Verse 7 says, uh, shows us that God works through his word and church in unmistakable ways. So the conflict is handled, the people are appointed, and the word of God continued to increase, and the, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, notice that, priests became obedient to the faith. Now one thing you notice in this text is that Luke doesn't tell us how the original problem was solved. I, like, I, I think that's because the narrative is more about personnel selection and the way God's word increases than problem solving. If the church selects the right and qualified leaders, those leaders will be able to solve problems as they arise and the elders can stick to preaching the word and the church built up. But if the wrong leaders are in the wrong places at the, right, at the wrong time, you make your problems even bigger, and the word ministry will suffer. It will. So let's make sure we don't budge on the qualifications for elders or deacons here, Calvary. This church is God's church, and he tells us who should lead in it. Uh, he says, um, sorry, uh, God has given us a description of what Deacons do in Acts 6 and who they are to be in 1 Timothy 3. Are deacons less important than elders? No way. Deacons are servants, and Jesus is the most important person in history. And Scripture calls him a servant, and he self-identifies as a servant. So this is not a matter of being less important. And as we've seen, even elders serve people with the word and prayer. Our tasks are simply different. Both elders and deacons are servant leaders who reflect the greatest servant of all, Jesus Christ, in different ways. Now, if you're here today and you're wondering, what's he talking about? 
<laughs> What's he all talking about deacons and servants about? Don't miss this. Jesus lived and died and rose again to serve us salvation. His life of service brings us to God. So before you commit to being a leader in a church or even in this church, be sure you've received salvation from him. Believe in him. Turn to Jesus. Be converted. This is one of the ways the word works through the church. And it's how our text finishes today. Interesting. Look at what's happening. The word goes out and people we don't expect come to faith in Christ. Who am I referring to? The priests. It says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So religious people who didn't get grace became obedient to the faith. They submit obediently to the word and believe in Christ. That's another way of saying they turned or trusted in Jesus to save them, to forgive them. And when people turn to him, they become new creatures. (laughs) They are fundamentally changed at the heart level. This is what happens when a church cares for people by meeting tangible and spiritual needs. Disciples are being made through Christ's church which is the mission that he gave us. And the church's credibility is backed up by their care for the vulnerable and their commitment to the word and prayer. Listen now, Daryl Box uh, speaks of verse 7. The word was growing as the message is spreading successfully. The word is described in personified terms here as the word directs its own growth. This depicts God sending forth the word through the apostolic preaching with the word much like seed growing into fruit. God's word increases and the number of disciples multiply and they do so together, simultaneously. Jesus finds lost people through his word and his church. God himself is the active agent growing his church through his word as that word spreads through the church. So how do we make sense of the growth here, Calvary? Are we outstanding? No. We're ordinary. But the same God who was working in the early church is working here in our church today, and that should encourage us. He's doing extraordinary things through ordinary means. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love that you have shown us. That someone came and talked to us about Jesus. We thank you that you are the servant of all servants. You are the greatest of all, Lord. And we have learned to serve by watching and hearing and reading of you. And Lord, we pray that our church would continue to be marked by a sacrificial service, a love that abounds, and Lord, that as we serve in different ways, from the deacons to the elders to the church members, that our church would be built up as we prioritize um, the things that matter most to you. Uh, Lord, we pray that the people in our midst that are needy would have their needs met. And Lord, that spiritual and tangible needs would be able to be met through your people. In Jesus' name.